Good morning, beloved. We will be in Galatians chapter 3 if you want to make your, uh, your copy of Scripture ready. Galatians chapter 3. And while you're turning there, um, just some kind of observations on life. Uh, you, um, this is probably not a shock to you, but sometimes the blessing looks like a curse. And sometimes the curse is actually a blessing. And what we think is a blessing can sometimes turn around. I mean, this is, this is where we come in collective Western thought to postmodernism. That out of modernity, the enlightenment thinking that rationality will, will bring us to this great fruition of humanity. That, that it's always this upward, rightward momentum. And so the more we learn, the more we understand things, the more we discover things and invent technologies and all this stuff, the better off we will be collectively. And yet, we quickly find out in the great wars that the very technologies that are advancing humanity into just greater life expectancy and so many other things suddenly betray us and become weapons of mass destruction. Um, all these different things, and so everything that's about functionality suddenly betrays us and makes life devoid of meaning, and so we turn to architecture that makes no functional sense just because, hey, it can be different. And we like that. And we, we embrace rock and pop music where there's an intentional distortion instead of things that just simply have their place and make sense. Because we want to push back and say there's got to be more than this. And then the dark side of that, that we make all truth relative. You know, hey, you and your context, what's true for you is true for you, and what's in my context true for me. And so everything becomes muddied and so much, but it looked like a blessing at first, and then suddenly it became a curse. And maybe you have had something like that in your own life, or maybe something was just awful, and at first you thought, like, this is such a curse to live in or to receive, only to realize on the backside of it, wow, what a blessing. For many of us, we would say, as I look back on some of the deepest sufferings in my life, in the midst of that, I would say, this is awful, and what a curse. But then afterward, as God has stripped me away of other idols that I was clinging to, and I'm left with nothing but him, I realize, what a blessing. How deeply profound. What I thought in the moment was a curse was actually shaping me and became this beautiful blessing. Or maybe uh, you're into cars. Um, in 1955, there was a perceived blessing as James Dean, who is an accomplished actor, um, he got a Porsche. It's kind of like his dream car. He's very wealthy, very accomplished, lots of movies and all this stuff. And so he bought his dream car, a Porsche 550 Spider. And he loved racing. So he was an actor, but he loved to delve into the world of um, motorsports, racing cars and all this stuff. And so he's in a few races and he gets this Porsche 550 Spider. He's going to race it. And so this is a huge blessing in his life. His favorite car, his dream car, he has it. He loves the blessing. And then suddenly it becomes a curse. And some people, and, and this gets a little silly, but there's something to ask here. But a lot of people say the car was cursed in itself because as he was en route to a track for a race, a car pulled in front of him and he died in the accident. And so the car lived on, though. Hot rod designer George Barris purchased the car, and while tuning the car up, his mechanic suffered broken legs as the car fell off the lift onto the mechanic. And so, don't want this. Two doctors ended up buying the engine and the transmission from the car. One of those doctors died in a car accident. The other was sent to the hospital with major injuries in a car accident. We don't actually know if those doctors had those components in the vehicles that they were wrecked in, but it stands. Someone else actually purchased the tires from this Porsche, two of which blew out simultaneously and sent the driver to the hospital. And so 
let's get rid of that car, okay? Let's just, like, <laughs> nothing good about this car. But it looked like a blessing until suddenly it became kind of in folklore, a curse. Like the car is cursed. And so we are always living in this tension because kind of like a car has neutral. Like you can put the car in neutral. It's not going to go anywhere. It's not driven forwards or backwards. It's, it's not in gear to go forward and drive or reverse Whatever the case, it can be a neutral, and yet we don't seem to think of our life as ever being a neutral. It's always either in a state of blessing or curse. Like we, don't, we don't tend to think like, oh, you know what, it's just kind of ambivalent, like it's, it's, we're neutral here. Like, no, I'm either living in blessing or I'm living in a curse. That's the way that we perceive our life. Um, and yet, the question that we really have to wrestle with is what do the ways of blessing and curses actually look like? What is the path of blessing? And what is it to live under a curse? And that's what we're going to wrestle with today in the scripture. So Galatians chapter 3, and we're going to be starting in verse 10, picking up where we left off last week. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. Um, and to kind of draw you back into where we're at here, or if you have not joined us yet, um, we're in this letter called Galatians that the Apostle Paul wrote about 2,000 years ago. And so Paul was an apostle. He received direct revelation from Jesus. Jesus himself showed up and told Paul his own gospel. And so Paul then starts to plant churches and everything. He becomes this incredible apostle, church planter. He's spreading the faith, this Christian faith, throughout the known world. And so he's traveling around. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. And some people have contested this. Like, hey, I don't think he actually has the right gospel. Um, it's, it's either like confused or distorted. Like he's not really an apostle. There are these accusations. And so Paul is writing to the churches of Galatia. He helped plant these churches. And so he's writing to them, defending his apostleship and defending the gospel that he gave them. And he's saying things like, look, there is no other gospel. Why would you turn away from this gospel? There's no other gospel. These people like don't listen. I went to Jerusalem and I have conferred with the apostles that they say that they support. Like everyone's in agreement. All the apostles are in agreement. The gospel is the gospel of grace. You are not saved by the law. And now you have these people coming in and confusing the gospel, trying to add in these ethnic signs of Judaism that you need to be circumcised or you need to observe the Sabbath or these feasts and these things. He's like, stop listening to that. That's nonsense. Your, your faith is what saves you. You are justified in the sight of God, this idea we talked about of justification, that by grace through faith, because God loves you, he has favor for you when you don't deserve it. None of your performance has led to God loving you. He loves you in spite of you. So out of God's grace for you, now you respond in faith. You believe the message that you heard, that Jesus lived, he suffered, he was rejected, he died, he was murdered, he was crucified on a cross, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again victorious to life everlasting and he's offering you full freedom, forgiveness of sins, life with him. He said he came to make our joy complete. Nothing that you could do, you just received this. And so if you began by the spirit, that God opened the eyes of your heart to see this reality, that this is who God is, Jesus, the son of God come to save you. Nothing you could do could earn your way into a right relationship with God, but he has declared you to be right with him, giving his own righteousness to you, taking your sin on himself, dying. It was nailed to the cross. This is the gospel. This is good news. Why would you turn to anything else? So if you began in that way, why would you turn here? So he's saying justification is by faith. This is the path of blessing. It comes by faith, not the law. And then, you know, he went to that case study of Abraham. It's like, you know, Abraham, 
he believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was not Abraham's obedience that led to his righteousness, his salvation. It was his belief that he believed the promise of God. And so Abraham, the forefather, the great patriarch of all the Jews, and you're like these Judaizers saying like, hey, like we follow Moses and our father Abraham. It's like, look, if the forefather of us all would agree with me that it's about faith, then you have nothing to stand on. And so who are the real descendants of Abraham? Those who live by faith. Do you know that? Church, we, follower of Jesus, we who live by faith and the son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us. We are the true descendants of Abraham. And so that's where we kind of left off last week and we pick up now in verse 10. It says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse because it is written, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Huh. So if you rely on the law, your works, your obedience to the law, you're under a curse. What is it? What is it to live under a curse? To live in legalism. To live in this system of performance to gain this merit before God that you can earn salvation. That is a curse. To think that you can somehow live up, be a good enough person. That is a curse. He's saying, like, this, he's actually citing Deuteronomy 27, 26, this idea of this curse. Um, in your text, it may be boldened, or there's a footnote at least that's referencing you back to that. And so Paul is quoting the Old Testament, and he's drawing that in to make this point. If you live under the law, you're living under a curse. You know why? Because you can't keep the law. Because you have broken it. And here's the thing. If you're bound by it, you're bound by all of it. You can't just pick and choose like, oh yeah, well, I'll live by the, the part of the law that says I must be circumcised or I must obey the Sabbath or this or that. It's like, no, no, no. You take part of it and you take all of it. And you know that you don't keep all of it. And so you're living under this curse. And so verse 11, he continues. He says, now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. But the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. Again, look, if you're going to put yourself under the law, you've got to put yourself under the entire law. You can't pick and choose. And so do you keep the entire law? No, none of us. None of us are justified by that. And so none of us receive righteousness by the law of our own merit. It's only by faith that righteousness comes to us. The law system does not justify us. It doesn't work to do that. Only faith brings us righteousness. And I love the, the phrase he uses there, live by those who live by this. And, and so you can kind of fill in the blank, like, hi, my name is Kevin, and I live by, what, what is it for you? Coffee. I live, I don't, I actually don't drink coffee. But I live by hockey. I live by the water. I live by, like, what is it that you put in that blank? What is it that you live by? To say that you live by something is to say that, like, that is what gives me reason for living. It gives me meaning. It gives me clarity for life. It's how I see who I am and what I'm to be about in this world. And so it begs the question, like, what do you live by? Do you live by performance? The way in which you can check today is like, that was a net gain. I saw the number come up and it was in the black. It wasn't in red. Whew, that was good. Account's looking good. Was it the affirmation you received from your boss? your spouse 
or did you get enough of this type of pleasure or did you get this or have that or what is it for you that you would say, I live by this? Like this is the thing that wakes me up and gets me going. This is the thing that I'm willing to suffer for. What is that? What is the system in which you live by? And if it is the law, it's a curse. If you live by the law, it's going to bring this curse. Uh, And so what is that curse like? I love the way that Tim Keller said this, um, considering the curse of the law. uh, And so to follow the law, that is what we would call legalism, trying to obey and perform rightly. And so Tim Keller says this, he says, legalism is looking to something beside Jesus Christ in order to be acceptable and clean before God. Legalism always results in pride and fear psychologically and exclusion and strife socially. And you know that's true. What does the curse of the law actually look like as we live under it, if you live by it? Well, it's gonna look like pride and fear psychologically and exclusion and strife socially. And maybe this was your experience with church. Maybe you grew up in a church or you just recently attended or maybe you perceive this, I hope to God not, but maybe your experience of church is, man, it's a bunch of people who love rules It's like, you should look like this. You should talk like this. You should act like this. This is gonna be your political alignment. This is gonna be the way that you respond in this scenario. Like all these ideas of behavior and it's all about behavior modification. It's the law. Even if it's not the 613 odd laws of the scriptures of the Old Testament, it may be like this whole code that we've made up on our own of like, this is what it looks like to be a Christian in America. And you just feel the weight of that, that you don't dress the right way, you don't talk the right way, whatever it is, maybe you have that experience that you know what it is like to live under that. And it results psychologically in pride. There's pride and there's fear pressing in from every angle. Like the ones who are good at keeping the rules, whew, big chest, puffed up, man. The head explodes. I'm good at this and you are not. And so we're gonna point out when you're not good at this and I'm gonna always just kind of shine brightly at how good I am at this. And so you know what it's like to be in that room that's full of legalism. It's very clear who is good at keeping the law and who is not good at keeping the law. And they love that. Or it's the fear of not keeping that up. And really it's the fear on both ends of that spectrum. The people who are good at it are terrified that what if I mess up? Or actually, the truth is, what if it's not that I mess up, but what if it's that they realize that I've just put on a front? What if, what if I actually surrender to the teachings of Jesus when he said, well, let's consider these laws. You have heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But I say to you, anyone who's angry with his brother has already committed murder in his heart. Like, <laughs> what? What? Like I was doing really good with not murdering anybody. Like I've made it, I've made it to my mid-30s and I've never killed someone. And then Jesus is like, hey, are you angry with anybody? Like that's, yeah. You're just killing them over and over in your heart. You're like a little serial killer, Kevin. <laughs> what? <laughs> Why, Jesus, don't do that to me. He's <laughs> like, no, it's so much deeper. And so even the best rule followers are still living in terror fearful that someone's going to find them out or they're actually going to have to come face to face with a true and holy God. Oh, you think you're good at following rules? Let's look at your heart. Or take it to the other side. You remember the other big one? Hey, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. So much as look at a girl and you lust at her in your heart, 
you've already committed adultery. But, but, I, but I run around with all these movies in my head with every girl I see. Like, yeah, you gotta stop sleeping around. But I'm so good at looking like I'm so faithful to my wife. I've never slept, I've never touched another woman. And Jesus is like, no, that's not the point. Look at your heart. And so the best of the best are terrified that the truth will come out. And the worst are terrified that they're just gonna be shamed more and more and more. And this is what the law does. That shame, that condemnation just starts to settle. And you're like, oh, I feel disgusting. Like, I, I don't measure up. This is the curse of the law. I mean, for me personally, because here's the thing, I, like, we have these laws that we can look to in the scriptures. It's like, so thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery. And like every person in here who has a pulse should raise their hand and say like, yeah, I'm guilty of both of those. Like, I, if Jesus says it's really what's in my heart, then man, I'm just like a super awful person. This is, this is wonderful, isn't it? Like such an uplifting service. Yeah. <laughs> But I don't think that that's what's actually driving most of us towards legalism. We're not, like most of us cannot even tell you the Ten Commandments. Like we, we can't even recite the Ten Commandments for the most part. And so I don't think it's the, like the Torah, the, the early law that's given to us that is like really binding us like, okay, legalism, like I gotta, I gotta obey these different laws, but it's the same heart behind that. This idea of somehow I have to perform and let me just tell you personally, like this is what I struggle with, is if I don't succeed, like if I feel failure at any level, then man, it crushes me. It crushes me because so often I slip into living for that, into living for my performance, even if it's just like the standard I have in my own head of like what did it look like to win in that room? For me to come out on top of that conversation, for me to sound smart on that stage, for me to, to actually have something to show, like, look what I've done with my life. Like, all these different things that I wrestle with and try to think, like, okay, what does success actually look like for me? And when it doesn't match up, which it typically doesn't match up with what even I think it looks like, then I feel crushed. Why? Because I'm living by this curse of the law in these moments. And I have to step back and be reminded and preach the gospel to my own soul, say, no, 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 Kevin. You don't live for their delight. You live for the delight of God. And God says I'm delightful because he made me delightful. Not by my own performance. He gave me his righteousness. I don't have to perform. I don't have to do better to gain a right standing before God. He gave it to me freely because he loves me. And that is who he is in his core attributes. He is gracious and merciful, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, offering forgiveness to a thousand generations. Like he shows up to Moses and I was like, I really wanted to see you. He's like, that would be your undoing. But here's the deal. I'm gonna like put my hand over you and hide you in the cleft of this rock. I'm gonna pass by and you can just get a glimpse of my backside. And then Moses goes over, he's in this rock and he's up on this mountain and, and like God passes by and God cries out and like saying like, this is the first time in scripture that he's like, this is what you need to know about me. First time I'm gonna speak of who I really am. This is the Lord, the Lord. And he's saying things like, I'm compassionate, gracious slow to anger, abounding in faithful covenantal love, willing to forgive a thousand generations. 
but holy. I'll visit the sin. The sons, the third and the fourth generation, which like really freaks us out. Like, oh, I really like the first half of that, and then the second half is like, wait, what? Like, I gotta pay for my parents' sin, our grandpa's sin. Like, no, no, no. The point is, like, look at that contrast. Scripture tells us He's not gonna hold you responsible for the sins of generations before you. But the pattern tends to be we kind of fall into our same parents' sins. But He's saying, look, forgive thousand generations, or yes. I'm holy and there's justice and I am wrathful because I love, I'm also wrathful. And so you see this God saying like, this is my heart, like let me tell you about it. And so we have to tell ourselves and we have to tell each other this is the beauty of the church in gospel community, reminding each other, no, 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 you don't live for the law. Don't don't feel defeated because you didn't live up to your own standard or the standard of others today. No, you live in light of the grace of God. You live out of the favor of God, not for the favor of God. And so here's the thing. If you are there today, if you find yourself beating yourself up over and over and over or just feeling the fear, the terror of other people who seem to have it figured out better than you, like this is freedom for you. That if you fall in that system, it's going to be a curse. But here's the path of blessing. It is faith. Righteousness comes by faith. The path of blessing is faith. Land there. Cement your feet in that path. Make sure you stay there. And every time that voices come in together, there's a new Ren, or it's not actually new. It's a Ren Collective song, but I just love it where he's like, when I feel condemned, when I stand there, and like the weight of the world comes in, he's like, I will just preach this gospel to myself that I am not a man condemned. Jesus Christ, my one defense. Like, sing that anthem constantly to your soul and to each other that this is the path of blessing. It's here. It's just faith because it is Christ's righteousness given to me. I have been declared right. This is justification, not my own doing, but what God has done for me. You come back under that curse of the law and like one of the reformers, Luther, he said, trying to be justified by the law is like counting money out of an empty purse eating and drinking from an empty dish and cup, looking for strength and riches where there is nothing but weakness and poverty, laying a burden on someone who is already oppressed to the point of collapse, trying to spend a hundred pieces of gold and not even having a pittance. The law is only going to be a curse. Don't live by the law, live by faith. And so Paul continues in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. Brothers and sisters, I'm using a human illustration. No one sets aside or makes additions to a validated human will. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed, who is Christ. My point is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously established by God and thus cancel the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on the promise, but God has graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. I go, okay, well, that's a little confusing. <laughs> Where are you going, Paul? And so you have to understand kind of that major storyline of scripture here. That in the garden, there's this Edenic covenant. 
that God is telling us, he's given us the cultural mandate and, and that still stands today. Like subdue the earth, take the meaning of it. Cultivate creativity, build cities, populate this planet. Like engage in art, do beautiful things, learn business and excel in it. Like do these incredible things. I made you in my image. Go bear my image in this planet. But don't eat from that tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Like that's, that's not for you. Will you just trust me to be good and decide what is good and what is bad? You know, we all fell for that. And Adam and Eve, like, you know, that sounds awesome. The serpent comes in and he's like, you know, if you ate that, you'd be like God. And that's at the heart of all of us as idolaters. <laughs> I'll just be my own God. I'll decide what's right and wrong. Cue postmodernism. Well, I get to decide. You get to decide for you. And I, like, no. We ate and we fell. And then there's this curse that's brought about. And yet, even in the pronouncement of the curse, the gospel is preached. The woman from your seed, one will crush the head of the serpent. We're going to put a stop to this. Someone is coming. And so we should read all of the scriptures from that moment in Genesis 3, looking for that promise to come about. Someone from this seed, from the woman, someone is going to be born that's going to change all of this. Everything that we have messed up. And so we read the scriptures looking for that one. And then everything kind of goes haywire over and over and over again. Like every time you're like, oh, this could be the one. You're like, no, 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 no. And so you get to the point where there are people around the planet, the known world at the time, and Abram is called out by God. He's like, look, I'm gonna bless all the nations through you. I'm gonna make you a nation. And he's like, I'm old. Kind of past my years, never had a kid. She's old. <laughs> Let's not say that out loud to her because you know how that goes. But like, <laughs> and God's like, hey, just believe. And Abram believes. Abram becomes Abraham and he receives this new covenant. And, and so part of the promise is of your offspring. And Paul is referencing back to that and saying, look, you got to read the details. Offspring or seed, not offspring plural. It's actually singular. And we know who that one actually is. Harken back to Genesis 3. The one who's going to be born and will crush the head of the serpent. So we have this beautiful covenant that Abram, Abraham, he believes it and it's counted as his righteousness, but faith, remember, and so we too just must believe. And then you fast forward a bit. Now there's a nation. Abram actually has a lot of sons. They're actually a nation born out of him. And so the Israelites, you know, they're led out of bondage in Egypt. They're coming back into Canaan and everything. And so they receive the law and that law becomes this next covenant, this Mosaic covenant. And it is the law as we know it, we typically refer to it as. And so if you obey me, I'll be your God, I'll bless you. If you disobey, well, you're going into exile. There's gonna be all these curses. And so the people start to live by that. And that's what's happening here. You have this first covenant with Abram. It's like, it's a covenant of promise that of your seed, of your offspring, we're gonna bless the nations. What do you need to do? Just believe. Abraham believes, and it's counted as righteousness. But then you have Moses come, and they get the law, this expression of God's holiness, and his desire for us to live in such a way that all of us would flourish in his image. And what happens? Everyone's like, fixate on that one. That's the one we're gonna look to, that covenant. And Paul's saying, look, man, you write a will, Anybody have a will? I really should write a will. Someone hold me accountable on that. But like you have a will and you die, 
if I die and I have a written will, can my son Leland be like, you know what, actually I want to change some of that so that my sister doesn't get anything and I just get it all? Because, you know, dad has a lot. Like, I like his toolbox. <laughs> so, so he's like, no, you can't do that, Leland. Dad died, his will was written. You can't change it. And it's the same thing. That will, that covenant that was given to Abraham, you don't change that. And just because another covenant was made, it does not supersede that first one. It does not replace it. The first covenant stands. And so listen, guys, don't live by that second covenant, the one that just shows you you're broken and you're dead and you need to go back to the first one. So let's just go to the first one. It's just by faith. Your righteousness comes by faith. This is the path of blessing. And how does that happen? He says it right there. Because Jesus became our curse. And he's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Deuteronomy 21, 23, when he says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And this goes back that actually in the Old Testament, it is actually there. That look, someone, someone is killed by the community, like they're excommunicated, they're, they're stoned for being caught in some kind of dreadful sin. Then here's what you do. Like they die, and then you need to go hang them up on a tree. And the idea is this would be a sign. If you were hung on a tree, this is a sign of divine judgment. That yes, you guys executed the judgment, but this is actually on behalf of God. Like they stood in defiance to God. And so let them be on display as a reminder that this is what it is to come under the judgment of God, the curse. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And yet what happens to our Lord and Savior? He is hanged on a tree, the one who would bear the ultimate divine wrath. Why? So that we would not have to. Jesus hanged on a tree, a cross. Why? To be there in my place. To be there in your place. Because we don't keep the law, and yet he fully and perfectly kept it. Sinless. He then took the curse, was hanged on a tree. Wow, that is incredible that he would become the curse so that I don't have to be cursed. What a beautiful savior. And then this is also why many Jews would balk at the idea of Jesus being the Messiah. The one who hanged on a tree? <laughs> like that's supposed to be a signpost that they incurred the wrath of God. Yes, exactly. So that you would not have to. So if we consider this, let me see this again, kind of in the historical context. When Abram receives this promise of blessing, that his offspring would bless the nations. If you go back to that, I encourage you for the sake of time, we won't read it, but Genesis chapter 15, um, what happens is Abram is receiving these promises from God who's saying things like, hey, go look at the stars, try to count them. You remember this? Like, I, I can't count them. I lost count over and over and over. He's like, exactly. That's like the number of your descendants. Like, really? Because we, like, we tried this weird thing with my wife's servant and that's not working out. <laughs> like, no, no, no. You will have true descendants. And they're ultimately going to be so vast, so innumerable. It's going to be like the stars in the sky. And Abram believes him. He believes him. And it's counted as righteousness. And God's like, okay, we're going to make this a formal covenant. And so if you go back, do your homework. This is super weird but fun. Like, there's, there's a type of covenant in the ancient Near East um, to where when you would be in that covenant, it was called cutting the covenant. Have you heard that expression, cut the covenant? And the idea, you think kind of like, like you know, when you're a kid and you're like, we're gonna be blood brothers. Like, we're gonna make this pact. And like, cut it and you're just like, no, we're gonna just like do a little prick. <laughs> like the idea of like some kind of a cut in this blood that's binding. Kind of like that. 
except way more graphic. So what you would do, and this is recorded in Genesis chapter 15, you would take animals, and this was normal, like kings and vassals and all these things, they would do this stuff. When they'd enter a covenant, you would take these animals, cut them in half, and you put half the animal over here, half the animal over here, and you make kind of this hallway. Like imagine how disgusting, the smell, the, like, the blood, the gore that's everywhere, like half of these creatures on this side and half on this side. And so Abraham is setting up, ready to cut the covenant with God. And the idea is the parties would walk between those halves. And as he walked between those halves, it was a way of saying like, if I break the terms of this covenant, let me be like this wow, <laughs> that's heavy, okay. And so Abraham sets it up, so you imagine, like there's the aisle here, and you've got half of an animal here, half of it here, and like blood guts everywhere. You're like, all right, we're gonna do this thing. And what happens? Abraham falls asleep. Abraham falls asleep. He's asleep, and terror comes on him, like dread falls on him. And he's like, oh, blinky eye, like trying to figure this out. And he looks out, and it's dark, and there's this smoking fire pot and a torch floating through the air that represents God as God walks through this aisle between the pieces. Like, the covenant is established. And here's the thing. Who walked the aisle? God did. Abraham did not. It's a picture of the gospel that even if you break the terms of the covenant, who's gonna pay for this? God will. And grace so just believe. Like what a beautiful gospel picture. That like on that tree where Jesus became the curse so that we would not be cursed. This is substitution. That Jesus would take our place to be cursed so we would not. So the bottom line, faith is the path to blessing. It's the path to blessing. But I want, I want to press this as we conclude. That for you today, pastorally, what I so hope that you gain from this. Like, uh, historical context, all that stuff, like, I hope you understand what he is arguing here. I hope so. But really, like, my heart for your heart really is this. I want you to see that this promise for the offspring has always been the plan. That the gospel has always been the plan. When you go back to that whole idea of, like, performance, and like, oh, and like, living by this legalistic kind of mindset, like, perform, and you feel the weight of that, what is the word I keep using? Feel. We feel that. We have to correct our thoughts because our thinking affects our feeling. And I want to show you how you can do that because the promise for this offspring, the gospel has always been the plan and that will affect your feeling because it will affect your thinking to realize God always designed it this way. And so when you fail and you start to beat yourself up, because we all do that, you remember, like this was the plan before the foundation of the world, Jesus stood as a lamb slain. What? It was always your plan that you would do it in this way. Mark chapter eight, just kind of, uh, I was with some, some friends this week and, and we started to look at this as I was wrestling with a lot of things. Mark chapter eight, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring you into this gospel story really quick. Um, Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi and on the road he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. And you imagine Jesus like stops walking and just turns and looks. You dead in the eyes. Like we've stopped progress. But you, but you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? 
there's no more important question that we could answer. Who do you say that Jesus is? And here we are in this moment. And Jesus is like, well, who do you say I am? Who am I? And Peter answered him, you're the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Peter's like, you're the Messiah. You're the promised one. Genesis 3, you're, you're that seed. You're the one that the prophets have been telling us. Like, we've been living under oppression. We've been living, like, bound by all these things. Like, we're just, we're in disgrace. But the promise is that David's throne would go on forever. And the Messiah is to come. The prophets have been telling us there's someone who's gonna make all these things right. Like, we're gonna be reestablished, restored, like, beautiful forgiveness of sins. Like, all these things. Like, you're the one, Jesus. And Jesus looks at Peter and he's like, yeah. And another gospel, you're like, well, you know what? Actually, heaven opened your eyes to see that. This is so good. You're right. I am the Messiah. And so when we think of Messiah, like the disciples there, we start to think of all the promises that come with that. The fruit of the Messiah come. Like, yes, restoration, redemption, like forgiveness, love, acceptance, like power, prestige, all these things that we want. We want the world to be made right again. We want our hearts to be made right again. Yes, this is good. You see that. You see the promise of all that stuff. Now watch what happens. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. all the promise of what it was to be the Messiah. And so everyone's thinking like, you're the Messiah, all of this good fruit that's to come. Yes, that's it. You're the one. All that stuff is coming and flooding into our hearts. We feel great. This is wonderful. And then Jesus is like, well, here's the thing. I'm gonna be rejected. I'm gonna suffer. I'm gonna actually be killed. They're gonna murder me. And then I'm gonna rise from the dead. Yeah, let's go back to before. He spoke openly about this. So what does Peter do? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. (laughs) Like, wait, Jesus, like, you can't talk like that, man. We got so excited when you're like, yeah, you're right, I own the Messiah. Like, yes, all of that, be long, be known, be loved. This is the beauty of the gospel. The fruit of the gospel is you have a place, you are no longer in exile. You have a home beyond this world. You belong here in gospel community, the people of God, the bride of Christ. You have a place here. You belong here. You're no longer an orphan. You've been adopted by the Father and he says, I know you through and through and you still belong. Everything about you, I know and I love you. You're accepted and you're loved. Forever loved, fully loved. Like we love the fruit of that. And we should, we should celebrate that constantly. It's part of our vision invitation that we put on everything because it is good. We should long for those things. And then Jesus stands saying, well, for this to happen, I'm gonna be rejected. I'm gonna suffer. I'm gonna die. And then I'll rise to life. And we say, yeah, you're kind of killing the party here. But this is the thing. This was the plan. You do not have the fruit of the gospel, the beautiful things, unless you have the foundation of the gospel. And the gospel is the historic story of Jesus Christ being born, sinless, living the life that you and I could not live, and then being rejected, suffering, and dying in our place, but then coming back victorious over it all. 
And so we cannot miss that. That is at the heart of the gospel is this story. It is historic. It has happened. Jesus lived, he died, and he rose again. That is at the heart of the gospel. And then out of that foundation, we find this beautiful fruit. And so I want you to see that and hold to that when you're not feeling like you've got it. Like I failed today and all that stuff and you preach the gospel to yourself. Don't just stop it. Well, Ephesians 1 tells me I'm chosen, I'm blessed, I'm loved, I'm forgiven, I'm adopted, all these things. Like, yes, that is all true, but you must press it further and see that is all true because Jesus suffered, was rejected, he died and he rose again. That is why all those things are true. And so you go back to that and you realize this was the plan all along. From the very beginning, that was the plan. And so when I'm killing myself, because I don't feel like I'm performing well enough, man, I'm freed from all of that when I simply remember But the plan all along was that he would suffer, be rejected, die, and rise again to show us how glorious he is, to show us how loved we are. And so we must remember this. This is the plan, so you don't need to feel defeated and drawn back into a performance-based religion that you've created or someone else has imposed on you. You're free. You are free. As Ray Ortland wrote in a recent book, he said at the cross, Jesus didn't sweep aside evil under the rug, but exposed it and paid for it. The love of God is not a cheap compromise. His forgiveness is a noble forgiveness. That's why when God washes you clean of all your sins in the blood of Christ, you can allow yourself to feel forgiven. Feeling new is the right response to the cross. Freedom is what God wants for you. The cross was the price he was willing to pay. You can accept his grace with a clear conscience. You pray. God, thank you. You do love us in this way. That knowing every bit of our story from start to finish, you would make a plan before it even began that you would take our place. Jesus, you would be cursed so that we do not have to be cursed. So that we can be free from a system that leads to nothing but cursing and live instead in the path of blessing that is faith. To just believe you. To be with you, Jesus. To enjoy you. And not live under the, the fear, the terror, the strife of legalism. But to just live in freedom with you. So God, would you help us to just sink that into our hearts, to remember it in our heads, but then let it really affect our feeling every day that your gospel is true. Jesus, you lived, you died, you rose again. That was the plan from the beginning. And so we can just believe and you give us your righteousness because you love us, because you're gracious. God, you're so glorious. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.